and welcome to this week's podcast. This is Josh Carlson with Hilltop Community Church, and I just want to say we're really glad that you joined us today. If you're new to the church, make sure to visit us online at hilltopchurchnv.com and fill out one of the online connection cards. We'd love to get connected with you and just say hello. While you're there, you can also find out more information about the church, get connected with Bible studies, submit prayer requests, and even find other sermons on the website as well. Now, make sure that you have your coffee, have your Bible, and your notepad ready to go, because we're about to get started with today's message. And so this morning, looking at how he is a servant for us, we're going to talk about how Jesus redefines greatness. Um, and, and for many of us, you know, in the world that we live in, greatness is defined by our accomplishments, it's defined by who serves us, it's defined by um, the position that we hold, the wealth that we hold, those types of things. Uh, Jesus, as we look, go into this passage, you have to remember this same Jesus is the one that we read about in the book of Revelation who will judge the living and the dead. Uh, this is the same Jesus that uh, in his pre-incarnate time would have been the one leading the events that we read about in the book of Jonah. He's the one that could put Jonah into the belly of a whale and take him to the Assyrians and make his plan happen. Uh, This is the same Jesus that was in the fiery furnace. This is the same Jesus that shut the the mouth of the lion. Uh, He's he's the same creative, powerful, all-knowing, everything that God is, Jesus, but he's also the one who became a servant for us. And so he shows us what true greatness is. It's taking all of, he, all of who he is and all of what he has and using it to lift up those who are lost. It's then used to bless those who could do nothing in return for him. He actually takes everything that he has and everything that he is and sacrifices it so that those who are rebellious could become his children. And so that's what we want to remember as we look at this. Let me pray, and we'll go through these passages. And so, Father, this morning we do come to you with hopefully an open heart and an open mind, ready to uh, maybe review some things that we know. Some of these passages are going to be familiar for us. Um, But maybe to learn something new as well, or maybe to take something that we already know and be challenged to apply it to our lives in a new way. And so we do pray that you would inspire our time in your word, that your Holy Spirit would be moving among us, speaking to our hearts and our minds, leading our conscience to make good decisions that honor you. Um, I do pray for anybody here this morning that has not made a decision to follow your son Jesus as their Lord and Savior, that they would see how, um, how much he has given that they would become his children and then the life that he's calling them to. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you have a Bible, um, or you're on your phone, the first place will be is in Philippians chapter 2. And so Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, this is uh, the passage that is often referred to as uh, the kenosis. So this is where Jesus empties himself. Um, and, and you can go weird places with this theologically, but I think if we just stick with the text, you'll understand the point that the Apostle Paul is making to this Philippian church. And these were a group of people that had become very 
there was a lot of infighting, a lot of backbiting, a lot of arguing with one another. Um, I heard somebody recently say that, uh, you know, the, the, the vision for Hilltop is that we'd be a home for the growing family of, of God. And somebody said there are times where it feels more like a home for the griping family of God. Um, because we can fall into this too, where we're just constantly maybe saying something negative to each other or picking apart something that we don't like or whatever the case may be. And if, we, if, we'll, if we'll grab hold of the mind of Christ, we'll see that it's not about us getting what we want. It's about us using what God has given us to bless others. Um, so I think that's an important thing to grab hold of. But it says in verse 5, it says, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. It's literally in the Greek. It's think the same thinking. So learn how to think like Jesus thought. Learn how to think like Jesus thinks. Have that attitude within yourself. It says, who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant. Um, as we go through this, you're going to see servant show up a couple times in the passages. This word here uh, in the Greek means slave. He became, a, he became a slave, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him a name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father." And so there's this emptying of Jesus in the first half. There's this becoming in the form of human likeness. He, he became like us. He joined us in our humanity in every way possible, right? He was conceived inside of a woman. He was born through a birth canal. He was a baby. He was human in every way that we would associate with being human. And yet he was fully God. And so he didn't stop becoming God when he joined us in humanity, but it does say that he emptied himself, that he didn't use his deity as something to be exploited and to hold people down, but instead he became humble and obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so it's the emptying of Christ that actually leads to every knee bowing to him, every tongue confessing that he is Lord to the glory of the Father. And so this passage, it's, it's about Jesus becoming emptied and showing us the way that we should live our lives, but it's also about him showing us what true greatness is. Jesus reveals to us what true greatness is and what's truly worthy of being worshiped. The, one that's, the God that's truly worthy of being worshipped is the one who used his glory, who used his magnificence, who used his wealth, who used his character so that he could purchase the lost. Right? That's, Jesus is the only God that does this. There are a lot of other little G gods that do some things that re require a lot from us. But what Jesus does for us, the one true God, is he spends his deity on us. He spends all of who he is so that we can be redeemed. And if you're a Christian, you know that this was the cost that was required. We can't fully understand that cost, but you know that this is the cost that's been paid for you, that uh, the God of all eternity joined us in our humanity, understood our frailty, our weakness, our temptations, knows everything there is to know about being a human, yet remained perfect and then gave and spent his blood to purchase us. That's, that's true greatness. That's why Jesus is worthy to be worshipped. 
And then the other thing that Jesus taught us is that this greatness, it was modeled by him and it's to be duplicated by us. So the next place to look is Matthew chapter 20. And in this story, in Matthew chapter 20, verses 20 through 28, what's happening is uh, the sons of Zebedee, John's and James, uh, Jesus would have called them the sons of thunder, right? These were the guys that were the big, loud, outspoken, wanted to be amazing kind of guys, right? They, they, when John, when these guys walk into the room, everybody understands that they're there, right? You know, they don't just sort of weave their way in. You know that they're there. And they, they want to know who's going to be the greatest. Who gets to be at the right hand and the left hand of Jesus when he takes on his kingship in the millennial kingdom? Who gets to be there? And they're saying, can we have those spots? <laughs> right? And so uh, their mom goes to Jesus and, he, and she says, um, promise, she said to him, that these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right and the other on your left in your kingdom. Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? In other words, there's a, there's a portion of suffering. There's a portion of difficulty that's going to come to be in those types of positions. And he, they said, we're able. We're ready, Jesus. We can do this. And he told them, you will indeed drink my cup, but to sit at my right and my left is not mine to give. Instead, it, has been, it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. Then the 10 disciples, the other disciples, they heard that the sons are using their mom to get the prominent positions with Jesus. They became upset and indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them over. See, there's this fighting among Jesus's followers. Who gets to be the most important? Who's, who's greater than the other? Who's going to get their way? Jesus called them over and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those in high positions act as tyrants over them. It, mun- it must not be like that among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And that word servant in the Greek is the word that we get the word deacon from. It means to be a minister or, a te- or an attendant. And whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave. That's the word doulos again. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom, a price paid, an atonement for many. And so Jesus' goal, his his goal was to seek and save the lost, to redeem them, to give them new life, and to cause them to live as ministers and slaves to one another. That's what Jesus' goal for us is, is that he would find us while we were lost. Has he found you while you were lost? Did you hear his voice? Did you understand his gospel? Did you see your need? Did you trust in his death, burial, and resurrection? Has he purchased you with his blood and been, have you been redeemed into his family? I pray that you have. And if that's happened, then Jesus has risen from the dead to give you new life, and he wants to cause you to live as a minister, an attendant, and a servant of others, and also a slave of others. And so a minister, that's what they do. They attend to the needs of others. It's a chosen position that comes with reward for a job well done, right? That's what a minister is. It's somebody that chooses to say, I'm going to serve other people. And and, and, and in doing this well, there's going to be a reward for a job well done. I'm choosing to be a servant of others just as Christ chose to join us in our humanity and serve others. It's a chosen position. You have to engage your will and choose to be a servant of others. And then he says to be a slave. And a slave is somebody that's subservient to others. Uh, The slave has to arrange their life 
under someone else regardless of that person's merit, character, or actions. That's what a slave has to do. There's somebody that must arrange their life under someone else, and it's not dependent upon how good of a person they are, it's not dependent upon what they've done in the past, and it's not dependent upon what they're doing right now. They choose to arrange themselves under that person. And here's what's crazy, that's what Jesus did for us. He chose to arrange himself under us and serve us and give his life a ransom for us so that we could be made whole. The God of the universe said, I'm going to arrange myself under you to lift you up. That's crazy. And that's why every knee will bow before Jesus. That's why every tongue will confess him as Christ, as Messiah, as Lord. But then he calls us to do this. He calls us to live in this way. It's what he did for us, and he wants us to join him in that, in living in a greater way. And so the infinite creator and possessor of everything, he arranged himself under rebellious, finite humans. The creator of everything arranged himself under rebellious, finite humans in order to save us, to demonstrate what true greatness is, to offer us an attitude to take up and follow, and to cause every knee to bow before him. And so that's what true greatness is, to be a servant, to say, I'm choosing to serve others. I'm choosing to arrange my life under other people. I'm choosing to make my wife more important than me. I'm choosing to make my children more important than me. I'm choosing to make my neighbor more important than me. I'm choosing to make the needs of others within my church family more important than mine. I'm choosing to show up to church on Sunday, not to consume, but to contribute. I'm choosing to be a part of a family of God so that I can bless others within the family of God. I'm choosing to be who I am in my workplace so that I can serve and care for and arrange myself under others, especially those who are in positions of leadership. If you hold a position of leadership in your workplace, the best way for you to lead is to serve. And that's what Jesus showed us. The best way to be great is to view yourself as small. And that's what Jesus showed us. He then lets us know that this kind of greatness, that it's unattainable without him. So go to John chapter 13 now. And so John chapter 13, this is during the Holy Week, right? So Jesus has already uh, done Palm Sunday, which is next week for us on the calendar. But he enters into Jerusalem on the donkey, and he's uh, greeted as Hosanna, and they're uh, making these messianic claims about who Jesus is, and they're looking for him to be king. And, And he's raised Lazarus from the dead, right? And people are looking at what Jesus has done and they're saying, truly, this is going to be the Messiah. This is the one who's going to overthrow Rome and bring about the Davidic kingdom. And, and Jesus has gone in Jerusalem. There's all these expectations that are on him. And it says of this one that everybody is thinking is going to be the messianic Davidic king. Before the Passover festival, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now when it was time for supper, the devil had already put in the heart of Judas, Simon Iscariot's son, to betray him. Jesus knew that the father had given everything into his hands and that he had come from God and that he was going back to God. And what that is, is that's a statement of Jesus's identity. He says, I am God's son. 
I am God's chosen one. I know my identity in my, within my father's house is secure. And because he knows his identity is secure within his father's house, so he got up from supper and laid aside his outer clothing, took a towel, and tied it around himself. Next he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet and to dry them with a towel tied around him. He came to Simon Peter, who asked him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? The, the, the Hosanna? The, the, the Messiah? The, uh, the one that we think is going to, the king? You're going to wash my feet? And Jesus answered, and what I am doing now you don't realize, but afterwards you will understand. Peter said to him, you will never wash my feet. Jesus replied, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. That's a statement. If I don't wash you, you have no part with me. If we don't allow Jesus to cleanse us, if we don't allow him to uh, have his blood wash over our sins and remove them from our account, then we can have no part with him. This is a call for you to be saved if you haven't been already. This is a call for you to trust Jesus. If, if, he, if you don't allow him to wash you, if you don't allow his death on the cross to save you from the consequences of your sin, you have no part with him. I pray that you would repent and believe. Stop trusting yourself and trust him. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. And Peter says, basically, if I need to be washed in order to be with you, then that's what I want. I want to be with you. Wash it all. It's a great attitude. And Jesus said, the one who is bathed doesn't need to wash everything except his, excuse me, anything except his feet, but he is completely clean. You are clean, but not all of you, for he knew who would betray him. That is why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed, when Jesus had washed their feet, he put on his outer clothing and reclined again and said to them, do you know what I've done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are speaking rightly since that is what I am. So if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done for you. Truly I tell you, a servant is not greater than his master, and a messenger is not greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed. And that word blessed, you could just think happy. You are in that moment living life in a way that brings you gladness. If you know these things, you will live a life of gladness if you do them. Um, have you ever wondered if God cares about your happiness? You ever had anybody maybe say that to you? I'm not sure if God really wants my happiness. I'm not really sure if he cares about my gladness. Uh, he, he does. He, he wants us to be happy. And in fact, he's even given us the path to happiness. And he says, here's the path to true happiness, to true gladness, that you would be a servant of others, that you would lay down your life, that you would give up being first, and that you would seek to bless the people in your life. You want to have a happy marriage? Stop trying to be first. Bless your spouse. You, you want to be in a great relationship with your kids? Stop trying to be first. Bless them 
and serve them. You want to be, you want to have joy and happiness. You want to love your job. Show up there to arrange yourself others under others so that they can be blessed. Uh, Whatever it is that you're doing, if you'd like to experience happiness, if you'd like to experience gladness, follow in Jesus's footsteps and live as a servant to your fellow humans. Arrange yourself under others. Um, Seek and save the lost, care and love for the hurting, serve others as Jesus served you. And so we give our life, our possessions, our wealth, and our talent away for the benefit of others. That's why God's given it to us, so that as Jesus gave away his wealth, his talent, his his abilities, his blood, so that others could be benefited, he calls us to do the same with what's been given to us. And he says if we do that, it will cause us to live a life that is both happy and great. And so we hear what Jesus said, we see what Jesus did, and we choose to obey him. Um, And so we take on a life of, of service. And the other thing that I think is important to recognize here is that as we take on this life of service, it doesn't mean that we become silent, right? He calls us to be a servant and he calls us to be a slave, but he doesn't say be quiet as you do that. Um, in fact, Jesus, he had this habit of doing something miraculous and then saying something offensive. If you were to read the Gospel of John and just go through like the seven signs, the seven signs that John records, Jesus will do something miraculous and then he'll say something offensive um, to us as humans. He'll do something to demonstrate his deity, a miracle, and then say something that calls us to arrange ourselves under him as God, right? And so our acts of service in following Jesus, as we serve, that doesn't mean be quiet. We serve and we call people to arrange their lives under Jesus Christ. That will be something that's offensive to many people. So look at Luke chapter 17 with me, verses one through, I'm gonna read verse five as well, but one through four. And so I think the next thing that we need to see is that being a servant and living a life that is great and happy, that doesn't mean that we're unafraid to speak. And I think this is really important in the culture that we live in. Um, The culture that we live in is screaming quite loudly at Christians that we should be quiet, that we should keep our voice and our opinions out of the public space. That what we believe and uh, what we say about God and what we believe about Jesus doesn't belong in the public space. But it does. It really, really does. In fact, as Christians, we should be seeking to influence our public spheres as much as we possibly can by serving and speaking. And so in Luke chapter 17, Jesus says to his disciples, Offenses will certainly come, but woe to the one through whom they come. Uh, I was talking to somebody this week. There are going to be a lot of people leading churches. Uh, There's going to be a lot of people who are in positions of authority. They're going to stand before God. And it is not going to be a, a pleasant experience for them. Because they've led people to believe a false gospel. In the name of Christ, they've preach something anti-Christ. That will be a very uncomfortable position to be. 
And that might not just be somebody that's in a position of authority within a, within a church or a nation. That could, be, that could be us in our positions of responsibility and authority that God has given us in our family. Um, leading people to believe the wrong thing about God. He says, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than for him to cause one of these little ones to stumble. Then he says this, be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and comes back to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. So someone does something wrong to you. Jesus says, rebuke them. Somebody sins uh, against you. They're living in a manner, a pattern of life that is against God. They're doing something over and over again that's harming themselves and harming others. Jesus says, walk in and tell them that's not how God wants you to live. Now, you may not say it quite that blunt. There may be a little bit of uh, bubble wrap that needs to go on that. Right? Sometimes you have to sugarcoat it. But nevertheless, you see someone sinning and you care about them. He says, rebuke them. Walk in and let them know that that is not God's plan for their life. That is not the best way to live. That is not the best way to approach sexuality. That is not the best way to approach life. That is not the best way to approach gender. That is not the best way to approach money. That you, you walk in and you say, that, no, this isn't it. And it's not that I know this because I came up with it on my own. It's because I know the one who created everything, including you and me, and he has a better plan. Um, at, the, at the FCA at Carson High, one of the young ladies stayed after afterwards, and she, she approached Ty and I, and she had a question. She asked us, she said, if I, if I have leaning towards being gay... Does God love me? Can I be gay and have God love me? And we were both like, what an amazing question this young lady just showed up to ask us. Because yes, God loves you. He absolutely loves you. And you can experience temptations towards uh, uh, sexual sin. You can, you can definitely experience it. You may even have a propensity towards those things. It may be so ingrained in your flesh that you'll always struggle with it. And God will love you but he has a better way for your sexuality. And so we pointed her to God's word and we pointed her uh, to, to not making her identity her sexuality, but to find her identity in God. And these are, these are conversations that, uh, that we want to be able to have as Christians in a loving, in a winsome way. Not in a way that pushes people away from Jesus, but in a way that draws them to his heart so that they could be redeemed and forgiven and transformed and saved. But it's, he says, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. That's a big if. So we have to understand that within the, within the story of the gospel, Christ's blood purchased all of us, he has redeemed, his blood is efficacious. It is powerful to save the entire world. Redemption is paid for. Forgiveness hinges on repentance. Redemption is paid for. Forgiveness 
hinges on repentance. And so to be right with God, you must repent. To be right with God, we have to say, I'm not choosing right and wrong for myself. I'm not going to go with culture. I'm not going to just do what everybody else around me is doing. I'm repenting. I'm turning away from that, and I'm trusting Jesus Christ. I'm moving towards him. He is the ultimate goal of my life. Now, here's the other thing that's really interesting. He says, if he sins against you seven times in a day and comes back seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. So what's that tell you? Repentance does not have to be perfect. Right? He doesn't say, give him one shot. And if he figures it out, great. And that's how God interacts with us. We repent and we say, God, I don't want to go away from you. You are what I want. As Peter said, wash all of me. I want you. I want to be your child. I want to be your son. I want to be your ambassador. I want to be a minister to others on your behalf. I want to learn to arrange myself others as you have shown me. But he doesn't expect us to be perfect. He understands that we're going to have some areas that are harder for us to fully repent in than others. But over the course of a lifetime, he's going to chip away at us. He's going to mold us into the image of his, of his son. That's what God's going to do for us. But you cannot be saved if you do not repent. You can look at the cross and you can see Jesus there. And you can see his blood poured out for your sins. And you can understand that his death paid for your sins. But understanding it and believing it aren't the same thing. Reckoning it to be right and living in a way that reckons it to be right are different. You have to choose. You have to say, I, I, I not only believe that he died for my sin, but I'm going to live as though he died for my sin. I'm going to take up my cross daily, and I'm going to become his servant every day. And that's the kind of relationship that God calls us to have with him, but it's also the kind of forgiveness that he wants us to issue to others. We cannot be in harmony with God if we do not repent. We have to want change, seek change, and find change in who Jesus is and what he has done for us. And so you look at this and you see Jesus was a servant for us. He was a minister to us. He looked after our needs. He became our attendant, and he still is. He made himself a slave And he arranged himself under us in order that he could give his life, his lifeblood for us so that we could be raised up. That's what Jesus has done for us. That's the good news. That's the gospel, that the God of all creation saw us in our sin and became a servant to us and lifted us up so that we could have life through his death, burial, and resurrection. And then he calls us to follow in those steps. And so we can serve and love others and get stepped on and forgive. We can serve and love each other and get stepped on by each other and forgive. We could serve and love and get slapped in the face and forgive. We could serve and love and get spit on and forgive. We could serve and love and speak the truth and get canceled and forgive. We could serve and love and speak the truth and get respected by our family members and forgive. 
We could serve and love and speak the truth and leave the results up to God. We can obey Jesus and walk with him right in his footsteps and be a conduit of his life. Um, with all the snow that's happened multiple times, a few of the times we were, we were out hunting in, that, in the beginning part of winter. It, it feels like a long time ago, doesn't it? And um, I would lead the way, and I would kind of like make a path through the snow, and I'd, I'd you know, get my footsteps in there, and then my daughter Cora would follow behind, and she'd just kind of get right in those same footsteps. Um, and it made the path a lot easier for her. And essentially, that's what Christ has done for us. He's just like, just keep putting your feet right there. And we follow him. And we allow him to lead us. And we go, okay, well, if he was a servant and he laid down his life for others and he used everything that he had in order to bless and serve others and redeem them and offer them a chance to repent so that they could come into the family of God, then I guess I can just kind of just do what he was doing. And he's going to lead us in that way. And so on the, on the back of your handout, if you're a follower of Jesus, I, I wonder what ministry God has for you. Um, may, maybe your experience in church has been as a consumer. You come and you consume. And that's all right for a while. Um, to, to get your feet underneath you and to, and to learn the truths that you need to learn. But eventually, God's going to call you away from being a consumer and grow up into an adult Christian and contribute. And so I wonder what ministry God has for you. And so basically what you have there on that chart is you have kind of like between proclamation and demonstration. So proclamation, you're going you're gonna to speak. Demonstration, you're going uh, to do something that is a demonstration, um, an act of service. And then you, you have non-relational things and you have relational things, right? And so you could have non-relational proclamation, um, tracks are an example of this, right? You can, you can hand out tracks and sort of give things to people, or you could be that guy on the street corner sort of hollering and screaming and letting everybody know they're going to hell or whatever it is that you're doing. Um, but that's kind of that noisy gong and clanging symbol. Um, the, the studies have shown that tracks actually account for less than 1% of people that come to know Jesus Christ as Lord. In other words, non-relational evangelism doesn't work. Um, you could do a non-relational demonstration. You could hand out food in a non-relational way. You could hand out clothing in a non-relational way. It's a good thing to do. People need food and clothing, but it's not going to have any kingdom impact, right? And so uh, those would probably be not the best side of, of the chart there. And then there's the relational side where you're interacting with people, you're getting to know their story, you're understanding who they are, and you could do some relational proclamation, and that would be way better to do. That's actually a really good thing to do, to have relationship with those who are in Christ or outside of relationship with Jesus Christ, and, and you're sharing who God is with them, who God has shown himself to be, your story, your testimony, what he's done in your life and, and what, it, what the word says. And you could do that in a relational way. You're having coffee, you're having meals together, you're going for walks, you're playing golf. I mean, there's so many different things you could do here. That's a much better place to be. But sometimes it can kind of miss the real life application, just a lot of study without any application. Um, and so what we understand is that our minds are important, but if it doesn't make its way into our soul, our will and our emotions, then it's, it's just head knowledge. 
And so the other thing you could do is you could have this relational demonstration. And so you could be in relationship with someone and serving food. You could be in relationship with someone and, and, and serving the community. And that's good too. But the hot spot there is where those things overlap, where there's a combination of demonstration. This is real life following Jesus. And this is really what God's word says. And that's where we want to aim our ministry. Um, whether that's serving with one of our missionaries overseas or serving with one of our local ministries, or, or maybe it's just where you want to aim your ministry with your kids. I want my kids to know Jesus, so I'm going to do relational things that are a combination of the proclamation of God's word and a demonstration of what it looks like. So I'm going to share with them who God is and how Jesus arranged his life so that he could bless others. And then I'm actually going to show them our budget and what we give away so that they can understand this is how we share our wealth with others. I want my kids to know what tithing is, so I'm going to show them. I want my kids to know what blessing a missionary is, so I'm going to show them. Maybe not when they're five years old, but when they get a little bit older, you explain these things. And so there's a relational demonstration that goes on, and that could be in so many different areas of your life. And so I guess I wonder, what is the relational demonstration that God has for you? As Jesus became a servant for you, what does he want you to do in the life of someone else in a relational way that proclaims the gospel and shows what it is in everyday actions? Let me pray with you. Jesus, we thank you for the example that you've set and for the person that you are, for the God that you are. We thank you that you laid down your life on our behalf, that you became a servant, a, a minister to us, that you attended to our needs, particularly our needs in the realm of salvation, that while we were sinners, you died for us. And while we were your enemies, you made us your friends. You've done these amazing things for us through the pouring out of your blood on the cross. And you didn't stay there on that cross. You, you rose again three days later so that not only we could be redeemed, but that we could be restored and that we could be in, uh, indwelled by your spirit and caused to live in a new way. God, I pray that we would walk in your footsteps. And uh, that as Jesus has laid out this path before us, that we would, we would walk in his footsteps that we would become a servant and a slave to those around us, that we would be a demonstration of what it is to follow Jesus and that our mouths would proclaim the truth of the gospel. I pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for tuning in and joining us today. We hope that this message encourages you to continue taking steps towards seeking and understanding God's truth. The dream is that Hilltop is a home for the growing family of God, and we're so glad that you are a part of the family.